This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Investigative journalist, Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, researcher, author, Linda Moulton Howe from EarthFiles.com is standing by. She, of course, one of the legends in the uh, the field of ufology. She'll be here in Toronto, in fact, for the Alien Cosmic Expo, happening June twenty second, twenty third, and twenty fourth. That's that's at the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel, and I will be there on the twenty fourth, moderating a roundtable on disclosure, and that's happening at one thirty. Linda will be. She's going to be very busy there. She's going to be presenting a documentary at seven p.m. on the Friday, Friday, June the twenty second. Then she'll be speaking Saturday at 7 p.m. on um, uh, symbols and binary code and high strangeness. And then she'll be participating in the Disclosure Roundtable on uh, Sunday at 1.30. A researcher, James Abbott, will be here in Hour 2 to discuss his Outsider's Guide to UFOs. Hey, if you love The Conspiracy Show, you're also going to love Conspiracy Unlimited. That's my new podcast. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That's right, three times a week. You can listen and subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. And if you like rock and roll and strange mysteries, and who doesn't, uh, check out my new podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. It's part of the Jericho Network, Chris Jericho of WWE fame. In association with Westwood One, new episodes drop every Wednesday at midnight, 12 a.m. Eastern. Uh, Just Google it. It, It's, uh, again, the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. It's available everywhere. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Quickly, let me introduce the boys in the band before we get rolling. My fine rockabilly friend Ian Robertson is in Nashville tonight. I'm uh, guessing he's performing with the uh, the band. In his stead on the 69 Fender Telecaster guitar technical producer, Sebastian Hearn. Sebastian, uh, welcome. Here in studio on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin. Story producer Albert Venzel and on the Hammond B3 live stream producer Ryan White. Uh, 
Okay, much to discuss. Linda Moulton Howe is an American investigative journalist, regional Emmy award-winning documentary filmmaker, best known for her work as a ufologist and an advocate of a variety of conspiracy theories, including her investigation of cattle mutilations and conclusions they are performed by extraterrestrials. She's also noted for her speculations that the U.S. government is colluding with aliens. Uh, beginning in uh, February of 2017, Linda's new web TV series, Truth Hunter, reported by Linda Moulton Howe, uh, that debuted on the Gaia Digital Network back, as I say, back in 2017. Uh, on February uh, 20, in February of 2016, she was honored at the L, uh, the Los Angeles Hilton with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Conscious Life Expo and the History Channel's Ancient Aliens TV program. Uh, and she has been interviewed on that program for every season, I think. What are they, around nine or ten seasons now? It's getting up there. In addition to her TV production, Linda produces, reports, edits the award-winning Science, Environment, and Earth Mysteries news website, earthfiles.com, which has been honored with a web award for New Standard, News Standard of Excellence and W3 Silver Award in the News category, an award for Standard of Excellence presented by the Internet's Web Award Association and Encyclopedia Britannica Award for Journalistic Excellence. We could fill the whole show with just her awards, but it's always great to have Linda Moulton Howe uh, with, with us on The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Linda. How are you? Well, Richard, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to going back uh, to Toronto. I've been there several times, uh, and I always like it so much, and that uh, I have a computer tech there who works and helps me. I have uh, various people who uh, try to keep me inside of the loop of what's happening, not only in Toronto, but Canada. And you know, there's something that I don't think that a lot of people know, especially people in Canada, that if you go back to where I uh, was doing medical programming uh, in hospitals and covering surgery and doing hard science, uh, like astronaut training and doing that in uh, Los Angeles and in Boston and then being hired to be the director of special projects at the CBS station in Denver and was working almost primarily in science and medicine the environment and issues affecting uh, the states that I have been working in when there were headlines in the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News uh, back in uh, 1979 about bloodless, trackless animal mutilations. Mm -hmm. And that was the Alice in Wonderland transition, working on that project, trying to get to the bottom of it, trying to understand what could possibly take the same pattern of excisions from animals around the world, as I learned, without even leaving tracks of any kind around bodies lying in face powder dry dirt. And I was coming from a very hard left-brain background. I had done my uh, master's degree uh, in communication at Stanford University, where I made documentaries for two years. I did one documentary for the Stanford Medical Center they used for 19 years. Uh, my master's thesis was with the Stanford Linear Accelerator on the brand new beginnings of having computers analyze bombardments uh, in uh, the accelerators. All of that, that was my life, and it is my life. Why the UFO ET part got added to essentially 
somebody who has been a producer, writer, director, editor in science, medicine, and environment is because of those animal mutilations and that the part that surprised me was as I began to just start doing the fundamental research that you start doing in, on any project as an investigative reporter and producer, I realized that some of the very first mutilations that were reported before the famous case of a horse in southern Colorado were in Canada. Ah. And in my first book, An Alien Harvest, on page six, uh, just this is brief, but it sets a tone here that they are uh, doing the Alien Cosmic Expo in Toronto uh, through MUFON because of history having to do with Wilbur Smith mm -hmm. and uh, other people in Canada who have, in one way or another, worked with or collaborated with the United States on so many different UFO, whether it was crashes or sightings. Well, here is a part of history that preceded some of the cases in the United States. And I'm uh, now uh, going to that in September of 1967, when the horse was found dead and mutilated in southern Colorado, and that, those headlines went around the world. It was the uh, first big international story today, we would say it went viral, uh, that was establishing that this mysterious phenomenon of the same pattern of tissue being taken with no tracks around the horse. There were no tracks of any kind around the horse in Colorado. Uh, for a hundred feet. Well, here it is. There were similar, this is quoting from An Alien Harvest, my first book. There were similar bizarre horse deaths reported in Canada. The month before, in August 1967, meaning before the horse that made the international headlines, on the Sarcee Reserve near Twin Bridges in Alberta, Canada, a dead horse was found where a witness claimed a, quote, domed saucer craft had been seen earlier that day. Then, in early November of 1967, two horses were found dead near Livingston, Ontario. One had a long cut on its neck. The other had, quote, its throat sliced and the jugular vein cut off, yet there was not one single evidence of any blood. That was November 6, 1967. On November 5th, the day before, near Livingston, a man reported seeing a large UFO. After it disappeared, a sulfurous odor remained in the air. Those were coming in some of the, uh, uh, we'll say not the major Toronto or major Vancouver newspapers, but this was an, uh, a Kingston, Ontario, Canada, they call themselves in French, Ray Rabot. Bureau, uh, meaning uh, the news, news Bureau, and that there were some of the smaller uh, newspapers in uh, Canada and the United States that were on an ongoing basis. They were having these reports of bloodless, trackless animal mutilations that the major, uh, like the New York Times, would avoid. And people say to me all the time, Linda, you're a reporter. You investigate uh, things that are really happening. Why hasn't the New York Times put on its front page stories about animal mutilations? And here is my answer and my insight 
uh, that I think that you, Richard, would probably agree. Going back to World War II, our government and the Western Allies had their backs up against the wall by Hitler and Germany. And the, we didn't have a Defense Department then. We didn't have a Pentagon. We had a war office. But there was something then that is still now, and it was Walt Disney. Walt Disney doing cartoons and Walt Disney working in feature films. And our government went to Walt Disney to get his help for a variety of uh, PR and various things that were calculated to help our government and the Western allies uh, in their both psychological and bullet war with Hitler. After the war ended in 1945, Walt Disney continued to work with what evolved into the Department of Defense, uh, the creation of the CIA, NSA, DIA. Uh, Walt Disney uh, did many things for our government as a loyal patriot. Also wired in that same period of time, um, post-World War II, came CBS, NBC, and ABC. And as if I've had uh, discussions with people, quite frankly, who got paychecks, uh, whether it was on contract or that was uh, who they worked for full-time and working as an executive in uh, the media was their uh, the job that was what they how they influence but the it the job at NBC or CBS covered up the fact that they were actually working for an intel agency or a counter intel agency and that right from all of those years of 1945 on that we have had tremendous influence by intel and counter intel in Hollywood. Linda, I got to take a break here. Yeah, it almost that, sounds like an early incarnation of Project Mockingbird. Yes. We'll pick that up on the other side. Linda Moulton Howe, EarthFiles.com, coming to Toronto, the Alien Cosmic Expo, June 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, Toronto Marriott Hotel, and uh, AlienCosmicExpo.com for tickets and more information. Back with our conversation right after this. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Linda Moulton Howe is with us, earthfiles.com. She'll be in Toronto at the Alien Cosmic Expo, June 22nd, 23rd, 24th. Let's just uh, uh, finish up this um, fascinating discussion we were having about uh, Walt Disney uh, and his role in creating, I guess, sort of this firewall uh, around mainstream media and, and, and reportage. And I, I mentioned that it sounded like a kind of an early incarnation of, of uh, 
Mockingbird. Yes, exactly. And this is uh, part of the answer to when people say, uh, how could UFOs and ETs that people in the human abduction syndrome have been interacting with since at least the 1950s, uh, how could it be kept from everyone? Well, this is the insight. Back in the uh, war years and in the 1950s, the uh, Central Intelligence Agency didn't come into existence until September 18, 1947. That was under Harry S. Truman. And at about uh, within two to three years, Operation Mockingbird was like a large-scale program of this new CIA uh, beginning in the early 1950s, and the whole goal was to manipulate news media for propaganda purposes. That's what they had tried to do in World War II before the CIA, uh, working with people like Walt Disney. And then it became formalized, and it was uh, in the early years of the Cold War, after the hot World War II, uh, that uh, there was a a reporter uh, named Deborah Davis, and uh, she wrote a a biography of Catherine Graham, and Mm. the Grahams were owners of the Washington Post. And it was that... Uh, that she was sharing the insight that the CIA was running an Operation Mockingbird and that they were trying to influence reporters having to do with the Cold War, anti-Soviet, things that this government did not want Americans to pay any attention to whatsoever. And at the top of the list was UFOs, ETs, human abductions, animal mutilations, and the fact that the government had policies of denial that were official and had been signed in a secret executive order by Harry S. Truman, bringing Majestic 12 into being, uh, that had friends of his that were in military and science, uh, medicine, and uh, business, and that they were this advisor group uh, that Truman, uh, then I understand Eisenhower, Baton kept being passed, that they were trusting to help guide them in what they thought was an impossibly difficult situation. And here, when you jump to May of 2018, and that uh, in Toronto, there's going to be a lot of people going because they are very interested in truth and facts, not counterintelligence and manipulation. And that all over the planet now, more than I have ever seen, are uh, conferences that are having more uh, audiences that seem to have already passed the government's policies of denial. I have uh, 20-year-olds that run up to me, Linda, we know we're not alone in the universe. Tell us about, and then they will have heard a radio or television, or they would have read my books or uh, something, and they want then to jump past the question, are we alone in the universe? Of course we are, they say. Uh, What types of non-humans? Well, what do abductees report on this planet and have been reporting for decades? And then the younger audiences say, what are the agendas? And that is what 
the CIA, the NSA, the DIA, all of the projects for the last 70 years, they have not wanted the American public or any public to get to the more sophisticated part of the chess game. Yeah, we've got an alien presence, probably several, and they've been interacting and based underground on this planet for maybe millions of years. Well, when you start going from being enthralled by the idea of beautiful lights, and then the lights have structure, and then inside the structure are either androids, cyborgs, robots, clones that have been made by a very advanced intelligence that might be 30 light years from Earth. The prime intelligence doesn't bother to go out in these craft. And that means that the vast majority of what has been retrieved, and our government has known this for a long time, from many of these crash sites around the planet, are clones, androids, robots, or cyborgs. That might explain why, during an alien abduction, uh, they seem so cold uh, and and uh, clinical and cruel because there's there's no there's no emotion there. There's they're programmed exactly. They are programmed to do work on this planet, in this gravity, in this atmosphere, and to deal with very difficult Homo sapiens sapiens. And the the agenda question. It has now become so complex, Richard, I'm sure you're aware, that once upon a time, in the 50s and the 60s, uh, most discussions were, was it round? Was it a cigar? Was it a lens shape? What color was it if it glowed? Uh, Did you see any beams? Today, the sophistication of discussions among those who try to investigate this on behalf of trying to get to real facts and share them with an American public that is supposed to be a government of, by, and for the people and should be first on the list of priorities to get facts, to get truth, not to be manipulated and deceived. Uh, And that's why I and others, we uh, work so hard because we know we're not alone. We know that there are alien intelligences interacting with this planet in the past, now, and probably will be in the future for a long time. So what is it? What is it they do? What is it that they want? Well, at the top of that list, from the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested, whether it's sperm and ovum from people in the abductions, or it is a whole bunch of different tissues from horses and from uh, cattle. Think of every domestic animal that you can think of on a farm, and then add deer, elk, reindeers. This, This is a huge gamut of Earth life. And people say, well, if if we've got non-humans and they are uh, mutilating animals that we, humans, also, you might say, mutilate and, and uh, sell in stores and eat all the time. But when you jump over to the question, uh, well, what about humans? Uh, my honest answer, and this is a really honest answer, 
uh, in uh, the 40 years that I've been trying to get to the bottom of all of this, I have maybe five total cases that have come to me from people who were perhaps a Royal Canadian Mounted Police was one case, and that it has involved a strange bloodless excision in a body that is found in a car by the side of the road or uh, somebody in a lake or uh, on a street in San Francisco. But there is never any eyewitness, and therefore there's never any proof. And in some of the cases, of which there still are not many that I've ever heard of, uh, they've been explained away as murders. Now, if you took 70 years of animal mutilations, we're talking maybe 20,000, 30,000 animals over those years. So if I have only five cases that might fall into some interaction with humans, and I really get a lot of traffic and always have from people who are whistleblowers, who have worked in the government, uh, people who are abductees and all. If we had any wholesale operation of uh, mutilations of humans on Earth, I think it would have emerged as a clear pattern. It never has. Now, David Politis and I were just up in uh, Colorado at a conference, the uh, Mile High um, uh, I think it's my high mystery conference. And we were talking about animal mutilation, Sasquatch, and uh, missing people, and, and animal mutilations. And he will say the same issue. He has no proof of an absence. If you have a lot of missing people, you have no proof in a, a forensic way or in a police way of anything, all you can say is uh, in X states or X parks that there are Y numbers of missing people on an average annual basis. If they are not recovered, if they are not found, they are a missing. And the missing doesn't have any explanation, which is why they are a huge mystery. So the the bottom line to all of this, because there's so much, and I'm going to be talking about a fascinating uh, aspect of military interaction with a phenomena that has to do with binary code, but the, what I'm trying to communicate with you tonight and with audiences in general everywhere I go, we are dealing with a 16-layer chess game. It is... As far as I can tell, it is woven into uh, the most ancient past of our planet, going back into the time of Samaria and Anunnaki and before. That whatever we are dealing with, it seems to express a need for our survival and existence. That gives me hope that if we can be stronger as a human race, and be told the truth, and understand everything good, bad, and neutral about what our governments know concerning other intelligences uh, based in our solar system, 
based in Zeta Reticuli 1 and 2, 40 light years from this system in the next uh, galaxy, Andromeda. Uh, what do we know? And that the governments have to stop uh, taking the attitude that we humans are too much babies to take truth about other intelligences in the universe without collapsing. I don't believe that's true at um, all. Linda, we just got a couple minutes before we go into the next break. I just wanted to, um, to ask you quickly before we do that, and, and that is uh, on the Friday, uh, 7 p.m., uh, you're presenting a documentary, I understand. And this is, uh, I believe, uh, the, my, guy, my uh, Gobekli Tepe. It's about Gobekli Tepe and uh, the symbols there and ties into uh, the issue of advanced intelligences that can disappear and neutralize gravity, uh, project holograms, and use self-activating software. And that is uh, a documentary that I did, and it's, uh, on a, it's available in DVDs at earthfiles.com, but I'm going to present it and then talk about it afterwards. Now, this is this uh, evidence of a, of a civilization that predates even Stonehenge, right? Oh, God. This, this is in modern-day Go- Turkey. Gobekli Tepe is 12,000 years old based on very careful, careful layer-by-layer carbon dating uh, by the German archaeologist who began the work in 1994 for the very first time, and we went all the way to 2010, and nobody knew about Gobekli Tepe. Nobody knew about the German archaeologist's work in southern Turkey, six miles from the Syrian border. Nobody knew till 2010. And then between 2010 and 2018, the saddest thing, they had excavated about 5% of an enormous hill that has 300 and some 19-ton pillars in rings. And we can talk about this more on the other side of the break. But Klaus Schmidt, the brilliant archaeologist, died swimming in a swimming pool three years ago. And with his death, it's as if everything came to a screeching halt. Wow. All right. We'll, uh, that's a cliffhanger. We'll pick that up on the other side. Linda Moulton Howe, earthfiles.com, coming to the Alien Cosmic Expo, June 22nd, 23rd, 24th, aliencosmicexpo.com for more information and tickets. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up at the top of the hour, 
Researcher James Abbott, the author of The Outsider's Guide to UFOs, Volume 1, Mystery and Science. Linda Moulton House stays with us, earthfiles.com, coming to Toronto for the Alien Cosmic Expo, June 22nd, 23rd, 24th. And on the Friday at 7 p.m., she'll be presenting a documentary on uh, Gobekli Tepe. This is uh, this amazing uh, structure, 12,000 years old. Uh, now it was abandoned after about three millennia, right? Uh, and they seem to have backfilled. Whoever occupied this seemed to want to like bury their tracks. But anyway, we'll get we'll get to that. I want to talk about. It was a thousand years after it was built uh. only that it was completely recovered. So it had been built this remarkable three hundred and twenty nineteen ton pillars in perfect rings with strange animals in 3D on some of the uh, pillars and all kinds of strange artifacts. And it uh, had a purpose that nobody knows except they know from deep ground penetrating radar that these big pillars are still there underground standing up, if you can believe this. So uh, what would have happened? And here's the current hypothesis that The whole thing was built 12,000 years ago for reasons unknown, quite mysterious. And then 1,000 years after it had been standing and serving some kind of strange purpose, all these 320, 30, 19-ton pillars in rings with animals on them were, were covered up. And nobody knows how this whole huge hilltop was covered uh, so uh, well that in 1994, when Klaus Schmidt started working on it as an archaeologist to uncover, he was doing soil compression tests. And as he went, he was doing carbon dating tests. And he began to realize that in his uh, his, uh, soil compression tests that he was finding a pattern. And the pattern could only match one thing, that once this whole thing had been built, it was covered back up, and that he was uncovering it, and that the covering up had a date 1,000 years after it had initially been put up there. And what is so interesting, Richard, is when you go back to 11,500 to 12,000 years ago, something that's still incomprehensible happened on the northern hemisphere side of our world. This is when... 33 large mammals in North America, Canada, the United States, went extinct. Saber-toothed tigers were found with their spines literally twisted 180 degrees. I've interviewed uh, scientists who have studied this. But this is the famous uh, mammoths that were found with buttercups frozen in their mouths so perfectly that there were still yellow petals in the frozen, fast-frozen mammoths. What in the world happened 11,500 to 12,000 years ago? And there are a group of scientists down in uh, the uh, Tempe. Tempe, well, there's two. There's one that is in uh, Tucson and some in Tempe uh, in Arizona, and they have uh, presented at science conferences in the past about 10 years Uh, evolving hypotheses that either asteroids, comets, something came in from outer space with tremendous speed, uh, fury, 
causing the atmosphere to catch on fire, carrying the fire down, slamming into the ground all the way from the southern border of the United States, sweeping up through all most of the Middle and West, up through Canada. They call it uh, the Younger Dryas period, and there is a black mat, M-A-T-T-E. It literally is there, the hundreds, millions of square miles. And in this black mat, which uh, was caused by some huge fire at that period, there are nano-diamonds. The nano-diamonds are everywhere throughout the black mat. And the only thing that scientists who are physicists and and, uh, astrophysicists can conclude is that something so huge with so much speed, so much pressure, hit these millions of square miles. And there was fire, but that pressure of carbon, fire and pressure could create nanodiamonds, and that that is why there are nanodiamonds throughout all of this. Well, then, on the other side of the world, at the Mediterranean, the uh, glaciers from the last glacial period that began, uh, hit its height 18,000 years ago, it was warming up at about 12,000 years ago. And as it turns out, there is no evidence of ice 11,500 to 12,000 years ago uh, in the Mediterranean. That means that what Gobekli, where it was, was dry. But somebody knew something, covered that big thing up, and guess what? When you look at everything that happened on the North American side, you can't help but say 2 plus 2 equals 4. That something that created Gobekli Tepe knew that something horrible was coming in on the opposite side of the earth and could destroy a lot, and it did, and covered up Gobekli Tepe. That is the working hypothesis of several people. They got out of Dodge just before the yes. uh, the Shinola hit the fan, as they say. Um, now, Klaus Schmidt, he, he was 61, had a heart attack in a pool. Is there any question as to whether that may have is that a suspicious death in your mind is there a connection perhaps because he was finding something he shouldn't be sticking his nose in what do you think you're asking the questions that a lot of people ask he was uh excited about his work he was enthusiastic meticulous great and to go into a pool and be only 61 years old and and, you know, Richard, he was used to climbing. Uh, all of us who went to Gobekli Tepe with Robert Schock, uh, the geologist uh, who did his Ph.D. at Yale, we, that's how I was there in June of 2012, we climbed up to the top, and it was, we're talking arduous. These were arduous climbs to get up to where you could even, and then you have to climb down into where Gobekli Tepe is. He would have been in pretty good shape, it sounds like. Listen, you I got to have to, you think so. I have to take another quick time out back with Linda Moulton Howe, and we'll uh, continue to talk about Gobekli Tepe and more here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. 
To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now just think of this. At the end of the last ice age, the world is populated by nomadic people, hunter-gatherers, and we're expected to believe that they constructed these, <laughs> this amazing temple with its, these ornate, sophisticated depictions of animals. Uh, these, I mean, uh, something like this would have required a great deal of stability and social structure. It would have taken hundreds and hundreds of people uh, to put this thing together. Uh, no, uh-uh, not buying it. So who, who, who built this thing, Linda? Well, I'll tell you, the first morning that uh, we got there, I traveled with about 30 people, headed by Robert Schock, Ph.D., Yale University, who contributed with John Anthony West to the very first news about 1992 that the Sphinx was 40, maybe 14,000 years old, and John Anthony West thought it was maybe 40,000 years old, and that made headlines on the front page of the New York Times back then. So that same Robert Schock led this group of us to Gobekli Tepe, and the goal was for us to climb the hill so that we would be right at the crest in order to go down into, because you, you climb and then you go down into a bowl uh, to enter where uh, many of the pillars that have been excavated are, and that we would get there a little bit before sunrise, so right when the sun would break the horizon, uh, we would be able to go down <clears throat> into Gobekli Tepe. So I was standing, facing, the sun came up, it hit my face. I did a 180 degree, not trying to uh, put my body in any position. I just, 180 degree turn from the sun. And as I looked down, I could see the tops, because they're like T's, uh, like think of a big long uh, pillar, and then it has a cross uh, beam on top. Uh, they, they refer to them as these T-beams. And two of them had a little bit of sunlight on them, and that intrigued me. So this is my very first steps down. Um, we walked down the hill on dirt, and then you reached wooden pathways that had been made so that tourists and the scientists and uh, the people helping excavate could all go on these wooden paths uh, throughout uh, as they were excavating. And that could get me down close to the T-beams that I were seeing touched by sunlight. And I was about the only person who walked straight down at that moment of sunrise on June, uh, it was June 12th or 13th of 2012. And as I stood there by myself, here, Richard, is the, was the epiphany for me. 
all of my life I have traveled this planet. I have been in very dangerous situations, beautiful situations, awe-inspiring situations. I literally have been in 20 or 30 countries. I've seen a lot, done a lot, and what has guided me, protected me, helped me to survive has been my gut. I always get instantaneous impressions about what I'm in, where I am, uh, feelings of anything. I've just always depended upon it. And so when I got down to that bottom wooden path closest to those beams, I couldn't feel anything. I, I remember standing there thinking, this is the weirdest place I have ever been. This is not recognizable to the human instinct, to the human mind. Later, I was to read that the Smithsonian Magazine sent a reporter there in 2010 also. that had it come before we were there in June. And that the Smithsonian reporter wrote beautiful words also about standing amid these stones and not finding any recognizable feelings, thoughts. It is so alien, and it comes across as alien. It comes across as unknowable. And to me, that is the mark of something that surpasses human understanding. And when you combine that with 300 and some 19-ton pillars that were put in rings, they weren't put there by human labor, I think. And, and Robert Schock came down and to my right at one point, and he said, Linda, I've been staring at these from above. And he said, you know what keeps coming into my mind are tuning forks. Mm. And he said, do you think it's possible that this entire place, when it was completely active 12,000, 11,000 years ago, after, before it was covered up, that it was made specifically to resonate in all of this limestone crystal with these strange T-bars that remind you of tuning forks. He said maybe this entire operation was that craft would come down with a certain resonant frequency, get all of this resonating, and perhaps this was tied into the pyramids, the stone circles around the earth, in what would have been 100% free global energy and communication. Is it on a ley line? It's a very good question, and I remember that we discussed all of this with Robert Schock in uh, Gobekli Tepe when we were there. And for some reason, as I recall, there was confusion about that. Uh, I think that there had been some uh, compass and some magnetic tests. And as I recall in the discussion, it was anomalous. And it was anomalous in a strange way that left the answer to your question un. Uh, unknown or uh, they di didn't have data or that there were magnetic anomalies that then uh, contra uh, contradicted or blunted the ability to get a clear answer. And I don't know if you went back to Gobekli Tepe today, 
would you get the same magnetic anomalies then, or does it change? And is that part of the uh, question about Gobekli Tepe? And uh, in England, they, when you're out in crop circles or you go to churches, there's absolutely no confusion whatsoever. You're on a ley line. And I do not know why that was not clear in uh, southern Turkey. What about these skulls they found there that seem to have been carved post-mortem? You're right. And uh, there are so many eerie thoughts about if Gobekli Tepe had three-dimensional, and for our audience, this means think of heavy limestone pillars uh, several, uh, y- like three yards, two yards high, and uh, not too thick, but uh, they're heavy. But coming out of many of them were animals. They are not glued on. There is no interface. There's no border in between the animals and the limestone. And that means that however this was done, these large pillars and the animals 3D on them were conceived and executed as one piece of huge limestone. Who can do that? Right. I mean, keep in mind, this is before the advent of writing. This is before the Sumerian culture. That's right. Unbelievable. Uh, we're just about out of time, but I want to ask you about on, um, on the Saturday at 7 o'clock, your talk yes. on symbols and binary code. Yes. Uh, just give us a, a, a taste of what that's going to be about. Some of your audience may know about RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge, and oh, yes. uh, I've been working with John Burroughs, the only person there at that big military base to have been engulfed in light twice. Well, his sidekick, uh, Staff Sergeant Jim Pennison, mm-hmm. on December 26, 1980, remained somewhat conscious when John lost all memory. And that J- uh, Jim Pennison didn't tell a single soul until we were working on Ancient Aliens in 2010 that that night when there was a bright flash of light and he and John, John remembers the flash of light, but it's John uh, or Jim Pennison who had zeros and ones start running through his mind and did not stop as he walked around the triangle, dragging his fingers over the symbols. The zeros and ones were going through his mind. And that, according to Jim, it was not until he was home, couldn't sleep, because the zeros and ones wouldn't stop going across his mind's eye, and that... He got up, and he was restless, and he wanted it to stop, and a thought word came into his mind, sit down and write this. And he had his notebook that he always carried for uh, crashes, airplane crashes, everything. Jim Pennison was known by every military person as always carrying a notebook that he wrote and drew in at uh, airplane crashes. And he pulled out that notebook, he got a pen, He said he sat down at a desk, and the zeros and ones started pouring out of his fingers with a pen, and he thought it was like a miracle. And as they trailed off in his mind's eye, he stopped writing them in his notebook, and he had filled up seven or eight pages. And uh, later, I, John, 
Jim Tennyson, others have worked on the binary code that Jim Tennyson uh, had in the notebook. But what has happened is when I started reporting about what had happened to Tennyson in the forest, I started getting other military whistleblowers saying that they, too, have had endless zeros and ones after encounters with lights, with beings, with craft. And some of it has been translated, and some of the translations are shocking. Symbols and binary code and high strangeness phenomena. That'll be uh, Linda Moulton Howe's talk on Saturday. That's June 23rd at 7 p.m. Again, this is part of Alien Cosmic Expo at the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel. I'll be there on the Sunday, the 24th, moderating the roundtable. That takes place at 1.30. Linda Moulton Howe will be part of that, along with Richard Dolan, Stanton Friedman, Victor Vigiani, and, of course, uh, Grant Cameron. Uh, Linda, uh, earthfiles.com is the website. Thank you so much. Look forward to uh, seeing you at ACE. Hey, Richard, thanks. And I look forward to seeing all of you who listen tonight come and shake my hand. Thank you. Linda Moulton Howe. All right, when we come back... The Outsider's Guide to UFOs, James Abbott, serious, serious researcher, right here on the program. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM here in Toronto. Those of you catching us on one of our affiliate stations, I think we're closing in on 40 across North America. Those of you who listen to the podcast at uh, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com. Those of you who take the show with you on your mobile device with the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both free downloads. Those of you watching the YouTube live stream, and please check out the channel, The Conspiracy Show YouTube channel, and hit that red sub button. I think we're closing in on 8,000 subscribers. Uh, Those of you who join us in the YouTube live chat every week without fail, uh, however and wherever you're listening or watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Researcher James Abbott is standing by. His book, An Outsider's Guide to UFOs, is, it's a good one. Uh, This summer, I want to talk to you about um, what's going on. Occulticon. All Things Curious, All Things Occult. That's up in um, Holstein, Ontario, which I believe, if you're in the GTA, if you, uh, if you head north on Highway 10, sort of through Brampton, north of, uh, north of Brampton, Mississauga, up that way, north of Peel Region, Holstein, Ontario. I think it's up on the escarpment, but there's a beautiful campground out, out, up there called Mythwood. The Mythwood Event Grounds, and uh, they've got these, uh, they've recreated sort of these huge stone circles, huge standing stones, and uh, it's just a beautiful, I think it's billed as one of the highest campgrounds in terms of altitude, the highest campgrounds in all of Ontario. So, uh, for three days, beginning July 13th through to the 15th, a Culticon, where there'll be lots of speakers under the, the, the lecture tents and vendors and 
uh, people talking about, uh, well, there'll be pagans and Wiccans and, and Druids and uh, people who are experts on uh, the tarot and so forth. I'll be there on the 14th, a Saturday, the 14th at 1 p.m. under the lecture tent, and then I'll be part of the Paranormal Roundtable at 3 p.m. Again, that's a Culticon, July 13th, 14th, and 15th. You can get a three-day pass. You can camp there uh, for the for two nights. And, and again, uh, really cool uh, campground, this stone circle. I can't wait to check this out. It's kind of a replica of Stonehenge, but not exactly. And uh, I hope to see you there. Occulticon.ca. Occulticon.ca for more information and to buy tickets. All right. My next guest has documented 40 of the most important UFO cases, nine official projects and reports on the subject, 13 fascinating strange UFO characteristics, 20 possible explanations for UFOs, the very best photographic and video evidence. It's all documented in his book, The Outsider's Guide to UFOs. This is just volume one, Mystery and Science. James Abbott is a highly experienced researcher, he spent years studying this timeless debate as an outsider with no vested interests. He presents all sides of the story without fear or favor. James Abbott, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good, good morning, Richard. Yes, I'm fine, thank you, and thanks very much for having me on the show. My pleasure. We, we spoke uh, a number of weeks ago on, on Coast to Coast, and we had a little more time on, on Coast, so this will be more of a truncated version. Uh, but it, it's, it does fascinate me uh, as a researcher, and you build yourself as an outsider. What, is, what does that mean? How, how are you an outsider in this field? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I've been thinking about that myself for many, many years. I don't think you're ever an outsider for anything. Um, what Basically, what there are in the UFO universe, if you like, are people who are what I call the diehards, the people who believe in something one way or the other, and they um, hold to those beliefs without really thinking too much or too hard about it. They are, they're the zealots, and they have good reason for thinking the way they do, and they're either massively against the whole concept of UFOs or they're um, unbelievably for it. Now, somewhere in the middle are people who have uh, doubts. They don't quite know what's going on. They get influenced by the media to believe that people are, um, well, maybe kooks and cranks, who believe in UFOs, and therefore they steer away from the subject. Well, the book is for them. It's for people who, who may have doubts and are a little bit frightened of the subject. But um, uh, what I wanted to do really was to present the facts for them and say, well, this is actually what is happening at the moment. And although it is absolutely stunning, um, it's, it's what's happened. It's what people are seeing. Do you, when you look at the world of ufology today and the way it's being studied and the way it's being presented, do you think there's a, an expression that's kind of vogue these days and it's called, you know, getting too far out over your skis? Do you feel... I'm sorry, Richard, I didn't get that last question. Sorry. Well, the, there's a saying that's very vogue these days, and it's don't get too far 
over your skis. Don't get too far yeah. out over your skis. In other words, I guess this comes from the ski jumpers. And if you lean too far over your skis, I mean, you can you can go you know down the hill, ass over tea kettle. Um, do you do you find that the the world of ufology has in fact gotten too far out over its skis in terms of the assumptions that it's making about this phenomena? Yeah. Now, there's. I mean, I I would have about. A year ago, I would have said yes. I would have said that it's absolutely, it's, uh, it's way out over the edge of its skis. But today, I think uh, quite the reverse. I think in some ways, the world of ufology is behind the curve. The, uh, the, the latest sightings by U.S. Navy pilots are absolutely stunning. And the evidence that's being released, um, albeit reluctantly by the U.S. Department of Defense, means that we have clear, I mean, very, very clear and very, very solid evidence of something happening over both the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans over a 10-year, 12-year span. And for me, I don't care how many other sightings there have been, and, and there have been some very, very compelling ones. These are, these are, you know, about as good as you're ever going to get. What's, you dedicate a chapter to this uh, this next area in your book, uh, seeing is believing, and yeah. I can't think of another field where there is so much photographic evidence, so much video evidence, and yet we have these this blind these blinders on. It's it's uh, even you know skeptics when confronted with photographic evidence or video evidence of, of something will say, okay, well, I'll concede that point, but not so in this field. What's going on? What is the psychology at work here? The, the psychology, I think, is the psychology of fear, the fear of the unknown, the fear of the unusual. Uh, human beings are very, very protective, and they will they'll believe anything if you actually show them. And sometimes they'll believe things that actually don't exist. You know, mag- magicians at the theater uh, produce magic that people think has actually happened, but it, ha- but it hasn't. So humans are very strange, but one of the things they are very, very good at is protecting themselves. Uh, the, the whole field of UFOs and ghosts and goblins and goodness knows what else is, is something that people... Well, but they use laughter as a defense against it. So they poke fun at people who see UFOs, and they think they all run around with tinfoil hats. But, but in fact, what's actually happening is that the, the, the psychology blinds them. It stops them from seeing what is really there. And it's, it's happened in the past, after all. We've had, you know, we used to have witches in both Europe and in, the, in, the, uh, in North America. And the... The, the local population would, would laugh at them, but live in fear of them and try to ignore them if they possibly could. And I think that's what's happening with UFOs. People fear the, the subject because it's, uh, it's something we don't understand. Is that a little bit like normal biasy? There's a, you know, in, in times of um, some cataclysmic event, there seems to, seems to be a couple of types of people. You have the people that will will just say, well, there's nothing wrong, nothing going on here, let's just continue on as normal, and then there are the people who say, no, we've got, we've got a problem here, we need to take the bull by the horns. So is that what's happening, normal biasy? People are just saying, I, I don't, I don't want to know. Yeah, I think, I think it is what's happening. I think pe- people tend to revert to something they understand and something they feel comfortable with. So consequently, if somebody says 
that they've seen. I mean, you can you can actually see it with the with the latest um, videos, with the U- U.S. Navy videos. They've they've been released now. I could make a very good argument for those being the most uh, important UFO uh, releases in many, many years, in fact, ever. Um, and yet, the, the most of the world goes about its normal business, and uh, about nine out of ten people don't even know those videos exist. So, yes, we do protect ourselves. We, we, we cling to normality. We have our comfort blankets. But but the scientific community isn't supposed to be about that. Where is the intellectual curiosity? You don't have to you don't have to conclude that we're talking that these things are piloted by, you know, little green men from some distant galaxy. Just as a as a phenomena, though, where is the intellectual curiosity? Where are the scientists saying, "Wow, what is going on here?" It may be nothing, you know, be nothing even close to what some people suppose it to be, but it is. A fascinating phenomenon, yeah. yet no intellectual curiosity. Yeah, I, I think scientists scientists are always intellectually curious, but they are also human. They fear ridicule. They fear being uh, being cast out uh, into the cold. I mean, there is a there is a sense in which scientists are exactly like the rest of us. You know, if we get if we get too far out in our jobs, and the bosses start looking at us and wondering what on earth is this guy doing then um, we, we stand the chance of maybe seeing a, a paycheck at the end of the week and it will be the last one. And the scientists fear that. They fear that um, if they leave the herd, that they will be, uh, they will be castigated and cast into our outer darkness forever. So it's, it's not a lack of, of intellectual curiosity. It's a fear of, of being different. Um, and scientists are just like anybody else for that. They don't want to be seen to be different. I mentioned the photographic evidence. We're coming up on a break here. We'll start the discussion now and, and, and um, yeah. continue, continue after the break. Uh, but you've compiled um, what you think are some of the very best photos and video evidence. And, and one of my, my favorites is, has to do with Edwards Air Force Base back in 1957. And um, uh, a very interesting character, astronaut, uh, Colonel Gordon Cooper. Uh, just let's begin talking about the the sighting at Edwards Air Force Base, and then we'll pick it up on the other side as well. So, uh, do, yeah. do you mean all the sightings, all the ones that were photographed? This was the one in, in 1957 when there was video taken of a craft touching down. We, there's the music. We'll we will pick this up on the other side. And the Edwards uh, Air Force Base one. Correct. Yeah, sure. I mean, Gordon Cooper was probably the most hard-headed and down-to-earth guy in the whole of the space program. Um, James, I don't know if you heard me, but we we, we do have to go to a break. There's the music. Oh, sorry. That's okay, not to worry. We'll uh, pick this up on the other side. The Outsider's Guide to UFOs, James Abbott, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. 
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. It's very early in the UK and uh, we're very uh, pleased and privileged that uh, James Abbott is up so early over there. He's uh, here talking about his book, The Outsider's Guide to UFOs. He's a serious researcher and taking a look at this from a perspective of someone with, without fear or favor. Uh, we were talking about some of the best photographic uh, or film video evidence, and uh, we were discussing the 1957 incident at Edwards Air Force Base, and astronaut Gordon Cooper was, um, was there while well, he was a colonel at that time. Not a, was he an astronaut in 1957? He hadn't entered into the program, I guess. He was still just sort of strictly a military guy, correct? Yeah, this was this was 1957 actually when when this uh, event happened, um, and he was an astronaut in in 67, but but, but he was just a, a he was a captain when when this this happened. And what did he witness? Well, it was it was he didn't actually witness anything. Um, what happened was he had uh, two of his lads were out on the uh, on, in the desert setting up on the Salt Lake, setting up um, an experiment. They were, they were testing a landing system, an automatic landing system, and they were using very high-quality cameras and film to try and track the aircraft as it followed the, um, the radio signals into the landing space. Um, and they were setting up about 8 o'clock in the morning, um, and Cooper just let them get on with it. He was back at base. But um, about an hour after they went out there, they came back to base, and they ran up to Cooper and said, look, uh, we, we, we've just seen a UFO, sir. And Cooper was very skeptical about the whole thing, and naturally. And he said, uh, I, I don't suppose you actually took any film of it. And they said, well, actually, we did. So Cooper said, OK, um, give me the film, and we'll, uh, we'll think about it. And these guys were very reliable. So Gordon Cooper was, was very um, convinced by what they'd, they'd seen and said. They actually said that um, a craft landed 50 yards away from them while they were setting up their equipment. They managed to get some shots of it before it, um, it lifted and flew away. So Cooper was neither, neither believing or disbelieving at this point. He, um, he phoned his superiors, and they said to him, well, look, get the film developed, but do not look at any of the photographs, and we'll send a courier to get both the film and the photographs within 24 hours. So Cooper did that. He sent it to the base labs, got it, got it developed, and sure enough, the, the uh, uh, courier arrived for the equipment, for the, sorry, for the films, and Cooper sent them off to higher authorities. But before he did, he'd only been told not to look at the photographs. He did look at the film that had been developed um, and ran a few feet of it through his, through his hands against the window. And what he saw, he said, was extremely convincing and very compelling. Um, and he particularly was a believer from that, that day on. Um, what he did expect, however, was that he would be interviewed and that his men would be interviewed subsequently about this event because it was quite a stunning sighting um, 50 yards away from these guys. Well, 
you know, that never happened. It never, ever happened. And from that day on, Gordon Cooper, who's one of the bravest men probably, you know, one would ever want to know, um, believed that the, the U.S. government was covering things up. Sure. He was part of the, uh, the Mercury um, space program, if I remember correctly, or was it Gemini? No, he was Mercury, Mercury. and uh, I think he flew on one of the Gemini missions, but he was certainly Mercury, and he was, when I say he was brave, I mean, this guy actually fell asleep in orbit. Um, he fell asleep before he was um, launched once. Now, I mean, in those days, well, even in these days, riding a rocket is a pretty dangerous thing to do. In those days, you were literally being strapped on top of a ballistic missile, and these these chaps were taking their life in their hands a big time. So, you know, for a guy to fall asleep while he was doing it shows how, um, how cool he was. And on one occasion, he actually piloted his Gemini craft back to Earth using just his wristwatch um, because the computers had broken down. Oh, my gosh. That's a, that's a real American hero, folks. And he never yeah. deviated from that story until the day he died, correct? That's correct, yeah. Never, never changed his mind, never stopped accusing the American government of, being, of covering up the, the UFO, the whole UFO thing. But many other people have done the same. I mean, you know, Edgar Mitchell, another astronaut, says pretty much the same thing. And there are officers and eminent people all over the world, in fact, who are saying that their governments are doing the same thing. Uh, another uh, military man, this is going back to 1952 in Utah, the Tremonton photos, and this was a trained, this was a chief Navy photographer, the U.S. chief Navy photographer, who, uh, who took some images. T- tell me about Tremonton, Utah. Yeah, the Utah one is, is really interesting because um, Delbert Newhouse was uh, a warrant officer, a Navy warrant officer. He'd got about 2,000 hours in the air taking uh, military photographs and so on. So he knew his equipment, he knew his, he knew his stuff. He'd been reposted and he was driving across um, the state to his new posting with his family. And obviously, you know, that takes quite a few days. So they were stopping overnight and then getting on in the car and on this particular day they'd really just set off that morning and they were they were just just outside the the town of tremonton when his wife started saying to delbert um plus stop the car you know um there's some things out there in the sky you've got to see them and he was obviously he wanted to get on because he'd got he'd got a lot of miles to put under that car before they could stop again and he did not want to be distracted. So he fought this for a few minutes. But naturally, as, as in most cases, the wife won. And he stopped the car and got out and looked at these things that she'd seen in the sky. Well, they were evidently at that point almost overhead the, uh, the car. And he was absolutely stunned, ran to the back of the car to get his 16-millimeter camera out. Well, if you've ever used one of those cameras, you know that they take just a bit of time to get set up. But he was an expert. He got it set up in minutes. And he was able to take some film of some object in the sky in, against a, a clear blue uh, Utah sky. And they were, they were amazing. But what was even more amazing was the story that he and his family told of these things being metallic, being round, silent, moving incredibly fast and in different directions and so on. But then again, you see, this is another story of a film that went missing because he sent it to his superiors. The film 
was um, developed and he saw most of it. And indeed, Project Blue Book saw most of it. Uh, you know, Edward Ruppelt describes this in his book. Um, uh, but no, Newhouse was always very upset about the thing because he, he always swore that the authorities deleted what was per perhaps the most compelling part of that film, which was of one of the uh, craft or objects, whatever they were, departing very, very fast by itself in a different direction. Um, and he did, he tracked it with his camera deliberately to give an impression of speed, but this, this bit of the film went missing and has never surfaced since. Uh, he was a, an officer in the Navy, or the chief photographer in the, or in the Navy, and you know it's it's interesting that when we're when we have military people uh, come forward and talk about UFOs, or when we have uh, police uh, come forward, uh, keeping in mind that uh, you know police testimony in court carries a lot of weight. If it's your word against theirs, you know that you ran a stop sign, they win because they're supposed to be <laughs> trained observers, and yet. When they come forward and talk about UFOs, all of a sudden the skeptics say, well, they can make mistakes. You, 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 you write a lot about that in, in, in the book. What's going on there? Yeah, it's the same thing, isn't it? The, um, the authorities are... They're, 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 you know, you've got to imagine that there are thousands and thousands of police officers out there and thousands and thousands of senior police officers some of them, just like in any job, some of them are more fearful for their jobs than others. Some, if, if a police officer comes back to you and says, look, sir, I've just seen an object in the sky and it did this and it did that, some, some people would have the bravery and the, and the guts to say, well, okay, I'll pass it on to higher authority and you, you tell you know, one of the UFO organizations. But most would say, look, no, I don't, want, I don't want the public getting to know that my officers go around seeing things in the sky. Um, so, you know, next thing you'll be seeing fairies. So just keep it to yourself and don't tell anyone and we'll, we'll try and sweep it under the carpet. And that, I think, is the normal reaction of most police officers. I don't think it's malicious. I don't think there is a, a national plan to silence the police about UFOs. I think it's just it's just a natural human reaction when they think they're going to be ridiculed. Have you been in touch with Gary Hesseltine? He's a UK uh, former police officer, I believe, who uh, has a, a website dedicated to police sightings of UFOs in, in Great Britain. Yeah, I, no, I haven't. I've tried on a couple of occasions, but uh, last time I tried, he was away on, on uh, vacation, so I couldn't get to, to talk to him. But, yeah, I've tried. And, and yeah, the, the, the accounts of police sightings are extremely compelling. Um, and you, you can talk about in France, in Britain, in the Netherlands, in Norway, in the United States, in Canada, of course. All sorts of police people are seeing these things because they're out at night. Um, you know, only the other day there on the um, uh, on the Coast to Coast interview, there was a chap called in, and he'd been a police officer for 27 years and hadn't told anybody about his sighting, but he and his uh, colleagues saw a UFO while they were standing outside a bar one night. Oh, that's right. Yes, now I remember that call. Yes. Yeah. So... What are we, um, what are we going to do about this? In terms of, you know, we've had so many uh, 
different, you know, official government-sanctioned studies. We had Project Blue Book. We had, before that, we had Grudge, which was obviously designed just to debunk um, the whole idea of UFOs. I guess probably most of them have been have been created with that in that with that in mind. But what would it take, in your mind, to conduct a proper scientific uh, a study of UFOs? Well, number one, I think, Richard, it's got to be international. Um, anything that's set up on a national basis probably would not succeed. And you've only got to look at the UFO organizations. Over the years, they've done sterling work, I mean, incredibly good work um, from MUFON downwards. Some of them are good, some of them aren't so good, um, but they all have hundreds, if not thousands, of very willing volunteers who try to get to the bottom of things. And uh, to be honest, they do an incredibly good job. But, but they haven't really got too far because they haven't got the money to be able to do that. Um, so domestically, I don't think there's going to be too much chance of uh, any, any light at the end of the tunnel until we get a big international effort together. Now, you know, given the jealousy, the inter-organizational inter jealousy of most UFO organizations, indeed all organizations all over the world, the, the best opportunity, I think, will be a brand new organization set up with um, a lot of money. Um, whether that's ever going to be possible, I don't know. But I think there are enough billionaires scattered around the world to be able to fund something that would give us a reasonable chance of success. I'm not a huge fan of the United Nations, at, at least as, you know, the, the, as a political body, the General Assembly and so forth. You know, it seems to be run by a lot of tin pot dictators uh, who sit on human rights councils and things like that. It's a kind of absurd in many regards. But uh, w w what do you think about a U.N. agency uh, sponsoring such a study? I mean, it has yeah, to have some gravitas of a, 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 it has to have some sort of sanction, governmental sanction, don't you think? Yeah, I, I'm not so sure about that. I don't think it does. I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in private enterprise, and I think um, the United Nations gets slower and slower with every decade that goes past. It takes them several years even to get together a peacekeeping mission um, with any success, and to do anything which was really, really difficult. I think it would be, well, to start getting the governments to agree to it, uh, the Security Council, you know, all of, all of the major players, um, the United States and the UK and France, they've all got vetoes. Um, Russia might put a veto in and China might think it was nice and mischievous to do that. So, yeah, I think trying to get the UN to do something would be, uh, would be beating your head against a brick wall. I think the only way of doing this will be a private organization, but and the eminence, I think, the status, um, the quality will come from the way the research is done and the sorts of universities that get involved. What is your take on, on um, the current disclosure movement? We had, of course, the, uh, the, the, the uh, New York Times article that came out in December of 2017. We've had some, you mentioned the, um, the Navy uh, video footage. Um, now it's, it seems to have fallen back into that old pattern where there's a, you know, the 48-hour news cycle, people get really excited, and then once again, it's just simply forgotten. Uh, what, what do you make of what's going on in the disclosure movement right now? Yeah, it's, 
I think you're absolutely right. The 48-hour news cycle kills most things, and people go about their normal business. You know, there's nothing to see here, folks. Off, off you go. Um, it's not surprising. I mean, we, we, we have a, a tendency, and it's a self-protective tendency, to forget almost everything once it's been on the news. Um, and in some ways, that's great, because some things are just too harrowing to remember and I think what people do is they've got better things to do in their lives than to worry about what, what U.S. Navy pilots saw in 2004. So, again, you see, trying to get anything moving is going to take a long time. And the, the only way of doing it, in my view, is to get a, a big organization together to do this in the background while everybody is going around uh, doing their normal things. All right, James, we'll take another quick time out, come back and continue our discussion. The Outsider's Guide to UFOs, James Abbott, right here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. From Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740. Or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Coming up uh, next week on The Conspiracy Show, we're, we're coming up on the, uh, the anniversary of the death of uh, Hollywood actor uh, David Carradine, who died under very somewhat bizarre, mysterious circumstances in a hotel in Bangkok. And uh, his ex-wife, who's a good friend of the program and mine, Marina Anderson, will be here, along with a psychic by the name of Michael Bodine, and we'll, uh, we'll try to get to the bottom of what may have happened to David Carradine. Uh, he passed away June the 5th, uh, 2009. I always loved that uh, t- television show growing up, uh, Kung Fu. Uh, then in the second hour next week, Nick Redfern is back with another book. Uh, he's just constantly writing. This one's called The Black Diary, and it's about uh, black-eyed children and, and um, uh, not men in black, but women in black. Uh, always look forward to a visit from Nick Redfern. Right now, James Abbott stays with us, The Outsider's Guide uh, to UFOs. And um, you, uh, you talk about sort of the four theories as to what UFOs might be about. And, of course, we have, you know, intergalactic craft. Uh, the second one has to be, um, or is about, you know, the idea that they are ma- they're, they're from here on Earth. The other one is uh, time or dimensional travelers. And fourth even weirder theories. I want to talk about uh, n- number two, and that is that, that, that they, they are here on Earth. Does this include craft that are actually advanced aerospace weapons or aerospace, uh, you know, created by, by humans, uh, perhaps, you know, at uh, Area 51 or, uh, you know, Wright-Patterson? Or are we talking about Aliens that um, that live here, perhaps subterranean um, civilizations, and so forth. Yeah, the the answer is I don't know, but but the, uh, the all of those things are possible. Of course, the it is possible that we have got the technology, and Roswell gave us a start, perhaps back in forty seven, and that governments have developed 
uh, craft which can do the things that people see in the sky. And it's also possible that there are aliens living on the planet who have keep their um, keep their craft in garages near where they work and go flying around the place and doing various things um, uh, at various times. But the first the, the first theory, the theory that we have developed advanced um, uh, flying objects, to me doesn't make sense because if we had, I think we would be making a lot more money from them um, and governments would be doing a lot more with them. But they are still, I mean, governments are spending billions, for example, even trying to find something as simple as how to not make a sonic boom when you uh, fly faster than the speed of sound. Well, these craft that people see, these objects, do seem to be able to do this without even uh, breaking sweat. So uh, in the last 70 years, if, if mankind had the ability to deconstruct and rebuild these things, I think we'd have done it and we'd have made a lot of money out of it. Um, and today, today's transport system would look a lot different to the way it does. The second approach, uh, aliens on, on Earth, well, yeah, again, uh, there's nothing to say that that hasn't happened. And there are a lot of theories out there that, says it, uh, that say it has. But again, why be so visible about it? What is it that they want to do that involves um, having vast, triangular lighted objects flying slowly over um, populated areas like the Hudson Valley back in the 80s or Belgium in the 90s or Britain in the 2000s. It just it doesn't make sense for them to do that sort of thing. I'm quite prepared to believe that there may be alien bases on Earth, but why all the, uh, the, the, the sort of obvious flying around and the dancing around in full sight of people? It's, it's true. That's the paradox. One, they, they're not uh, landing on the White House lawn and saying, here we are. Uh, and then on the other hand, as you say, they're flying mass sightings of slowly hovering above Phoenix uh, with their lights blinking, saying, here we are, here we are. So which, you know, it's, uh, they're being very coy, aren't they? Come here, come here, come here, go away, go away, go away. Yep, it's. It, it is baffling, but then that's, that's what makes the UFO um, issue uh, so compelling and so interesting, because if you don't, if you don't go overboard on, on one side or the other, the middle ground of UFOs is probably the most mysterious thing that humanity has facing it at the moment. Um, there's a bit of science that we have to learn. There are, there are parts of, of the mysterious that people don't understand, like the creatures, the Hopkins build things. Uh, the, the whole thing is, is an incredible mystery. Um, but the, the point is, why do they do it? Um, and on the one hand, I've said in the book, you know, one of the simplest examples is tourism with a smattering of scientific and military investigation. <laughs> These things um, exhibit all the characteristics of a tourist coach going around looking at all the sites. So they drift quietly over towns they they don't mind anybody seeing them because they know they know will not believe it afterwards and will certainly not believe anybody who tells tells that they've seen it so w what they are i don't know but made on earth i don't think so well we're uh, we're coming up on a break here again but uh, this was a short segment we'll head into the break 
Uh, on the other side, we'll get to number three as a possible explanation, which uh, involves time or dimensional travelers. And then, believe it or not, there's something even weirder than that, which is a possible explanation. We'll discuss with James Abbott, The Outsider's Guide to UFOs, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. James Abbott is uh, with us, the outside, Outsider's Guide to UFOs, and we were uh, rattling off the, uh, the list of possible explanations for what these UFOs might be, and we're talking about the 5% of sightings that really truly are unexplained. Uh, number three on the list, uh, as you point out in the book, makes, may make some people roll their eyes, but that is uh, something that we have to at least consider, and that is that these are time or dimensional travelers. What do you mean by that specifically? Okay, these these um, theories about time or dimensional travellers are not new. Um, as you say, they make people roll their eyes. But the and and to be honest, it made me roll my eyes when I first read about these things a few years ago. the The idea of time travel has been around for a long time. Of course, you know, H. G. Wells was uh, instrumental in making it common culture. Um, and multi-dimensions are something that have been sort of floated around the science fiction community for a long time. But the, the fact is now we are beginning to understand the physics of time and, and dimensions. And it, it, it is actually weirder and stranger than we could ever have thought. Um, you know, you've only got to read some of the stuff that uh, Professor Nomura of Berkeley is putting out at the moment, and you, that you begin to realize that the universe is a very, very strange place. So he, he believes, and he has the physics to, uh, to back it up, that the, the universe may be, in fact, multiple universes. So we would call those dimensions or, or bubbles in which other things happen. And these are infinite absolutely infinite he also believes that time may time itself which is probably the most powerful force in the universe i mean nothing happens without time going in one direction but he believes that it may actually be a matter of probability and that it only exists in the eyes of the the beholder pretty much like most of what happens in quantum physics now i said i was telling somebody the other day though about this and they said oh god you know that's just weird it's so far out there, we cannot even begin to believe it. So I said, well, okay, here's, here's another one. How about the fact that you don't exist? And they said, what? I said, well, you really don't exist. You know, you've got, you are built in what we understand are 
are things that exist in normal physics, you know, particles, atoms, protons. And he said, yeah, that's absolutely right. I said, yeah, but what are the atoms and protons made of? And he said, well, there are smaller particles, and that's true. But if you get down to that level, that quantum level, those particles actually do not exist in anything other than probability. So we, the brick wall that is around us all, those brick walls don't exist. We don't exist. Now, if that's not strange, then, and, and if you can't then think, well, maybe time and dimensional travelers could exist, then, well, you're not thinking straight. So our reality is just one gigantic Schrodinger cat experiment. Is that the idea? Yeah, could be. Um, and what we're talking about here is something maybe that uh, is um, a matter of probability. It seems that the whole universe operates uh, at a level below the one we see and understand. And many of the scientists that are looking into this, and this, is, this goes back to your point, I think, about science taking things seriously. They may not be taking UFOs seriously, but what they are taking seriously is, is the science which underlies where the, the, how UFOs probably, possibly, could um, operate. And that is that there is, there is no certainty anymore. We don't live in a Newtonian universe where the mechanics work and they work every time in exactly the same way. We live in what is effectively a probabilistic universe in which things only work if you look at them. Now, the, the possibility that we are talking about a spiritual phenomena, that these could be from an angelic realm, uh, for those who uh, you know, believe in, in, in uh, a, a biblical narrative or one of the ma major theistic re religions who, who believe in, in angels, is, would that be covered by number three, time and dimensional um, travelers? Yeah, it could be. I mean, whatever you call um, whatever it might be happening, um, it, is, it is something that is beyond what we know at the moment. It's, you know, a lot of people think they know what's going on, and a lot of people believe in what is going on, but, but we don't actually know at the moment. Um, and... You know, if I was to talk to one of my physicist friends nowadays, he would say to me, we would probably never know for sure because truth, as you, uh, you know, as one often hears it put, actually doesn't exist. There is no such thing because it only exists in one universe at one particular time and in one particular set of circumstances. And number four, uh, which is just... <laughs> goes totally off the rails. It's, it, it, well, J. J. Allen Hynek uh, talked about um, mind and matter. So explain what yes. this fourth explanation is for UFOs. Okay, the, the, the fourth explanation or fourth possible explanation for what we see is that they are just mental images, that they don't actually exist in any physical sense. And again, this ties in with number three and what we are already beginning to understand about the way that the universe acts, that in fact things don't work the way we've always believed them to work and the way we were taught at school that they worked. And Alan Hynek came up with this idea that maybe some of these things that people see in the sky are not actually there. They're projections that something somewhere is projecting the images into people's minds. And again, you, you sort of occasionally find accounts of people who see UFOs and say, they made me feel better, or as soon as I thought 
come towards me. They did come towards me. And as soon as I got scared, they went away again. And it's, it's those sort of things that made Alan Hynek think, well, maybe these things are mental rather than um, original, uh, rather than physical. And, of course, then you've got the, the theory that maybe some of them are actually living creatures. And, um, you know, this is going back to the Scots um, and our Ivan Sanderson's theories about uninvited visitors, that, in fact, we, the universe is, is just as strange as we are beginning to understand it to be, and that out there there are creatures, whole creatures, that are so large um, that they can appear to be objects, and that the creatures themselves um, control, not control, but can influence minds. Now, it's funny because I had a, a conversation with uh, Grant Cameron, a, a noted Canadian ufologist and who has yeah. scoured presidential uh, libraries looking for documents pertaining to UFOs, particularly the Clinton Library. And uh, he uh, is now of the mind that it, uh, we're probably talking about number four. In fact, he, he talks about a conversation he had with, I believe it was a, pr a professor at either Harvard or Princeton who... Uh, had knowledge of, you know, the, the infamous Majestic 12 group, those that are charged with keeping a lid on the UFO secret. And what this gentleman told him, his name escapes me, um, uh, but he, he, he said, and if you really want to understand the UFO phenomena, you have to understand psychic ability, which was also something that Ben Rich said, who was, of course, the, uh, the director of Skunk Works, uh, the... Uh, Boeing's experimental um, R&D uh, branch. So, is that what we're talking about? Do you think with number four that this it has to do with consciousness and psychic ability? Yes, it could. It could indeed. The, the again, you see, the whole thing is about our lack of knowledge about the way things really work in the universe and our lack of understanding of how people communicate. We we know, for example, that. Um, psychic ability and tele telepathic ability can exist. You know, they, we know it can't be replicated a lot of the time, but we, we also know that there are too many stories of people having mental contact with another person, even if it's just a feeling that they um, are in trouble or a feeling that they are, um, they, you know, that they are happy or whatever. We, we know that all of that stuff exists and we, we we, we tend to lay it off as a, um, an imagination and overactive, uh, um, you know, sort of people. But it's, um, it's possible, yes, it's, it, it's entirely possible. Because until we understand how two particles, two quantum particles, can be in different places at the same time, until we understand how those same particles can effectively communicate over astronomical distances faster than the speed of light, then we, we really shouldn't be writing off things like mental images and psychic ability. Uh, and yet, there, there does seem to be some physicality to this phenomena as well. Now, we're told that Robert Bigelow, um, who is involved in, in um, ATIP, the um, Advanced Aerial Threat identification program, and this was sort yeah. of behind the uh, the December New York Times article, uh, we're told that maybe this whole disclosure thing has been, has been turned over to him, and that he has, sitting in a warehouse somewhere, you know, little bits and pieces of metal and parts from these craft. 
if that's the case, why doesn't he just show us? Or or is 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 he now going to uh, uh, sort of hoard this material and this technology? Uh, and, and in which case, we'll never have disclosure. <laughs> yeah, I. Yeah, Robert Bigelow um, and the whole Bigelow thing is, is just as much of a mystery as the UFO. Um, we've, um, we've been trying to get to the bottom of that for a while. So it, it gives me a little bit of hope that there is something happening out there that will uh, give future generations just as much fun as we've had in, in getting into the UFO phenomena. But yeah, if he's got bits sitting in a warehouse somewhere and he's um, doing anything with them, my guess is what he's trying to do is to understand them. Um, we, we simply, well, I think it's more likely that we don't understand what these bits and pieces of metal or uh, technology are and that we're trying to do it. And until we do, I don't think Bigelow or the U.S. government or any government, the Canadian, the British, the French, whatever, will start announcing or disclosing anything. I get the impression, though, after reading your book, that ultimately, though, this may be just unknowable. What are your thoughts? Uh, this, this may be unknowable, yes. I, I, I do think that. The, at the end of the day, there are things that we are able to understand and comprehend. Um, and one of the things that a lot of people have said to me when they've, they've commented on the book is that this could be one of those things that we have to mature by maybe another 100 200, maybe a 1,000 years before we have the mental capacity to understand what is happening. This is Volume 1, Mystery and Science. Uh, is Volume 2 in the works, James? <laughs> yes, it is, yes. Can you, uh, can you tease us a little bit? What is the, uh, the subtitle of this one? Uh, the subtitle is, is Curiouser and Curiouser, and it goes into the 21st century sightings of UFOs and also some of the sort of science issues that we've been talking about uh, this morning, the way that, uh, you know, we, we simply don't understand what's going on. But Volume 2 is, yeah, about a few, few months from being published. All right, and this is available at uh, Amazon and all good bookstores. Again, The Outsider's Guide to UFOs. James Abbott, thanks for getting up so early in the morning uh, in the UK. I appreciate it. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, my thanks to uh, Albert and Ryan and Sebastian Hearn. Great job behind the big uh, audio board there, Sebastian. Thank you. Good to see you again. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.